Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Welcome, everyone, to a live edition of Canada's Most Irreverent Talk Show, which, if you are not careful on autocorrect, is uh, remarkably similar to uh, Irrelevant, which describes Canada's third party led by Jagmeet Singh. So we try not to get too much confusion going on there. If you are watching in the room here, you are very confused at uh, to whom I'm speaking. We are broadcasting live on True North, and we thank you so much for tuning in, whether you're in the room here at the Canada Strong and Free Networking Conference, or if you are tuned in from anywhere else in the country. We thank you so much, and I just want to say on a bit of a housekeeping note, I want to begin by thanking, these things don't happen without a lot of support behind the scenes, and I want to just say a big thank you to our friends at the Chinese Embassy. <laughs> Sorry, someone left their liberal nomination speech here. My mistake. Did not mean to do that. Totally disregard that happened. It's live, so we can't edit it out. We'll just uh, pretend it never happened like the last seven years in Canadian politics. So it was actually quite interesting. Did anyone get a chance to see uh, Stephen Harper and Preston Manning yesterday? Yeah. They talked a lot about some of the old glory days of conservative politics, of reform politics. And the one that everyone really enjoyed was the fact that they had to go without support from the government for their fledgling political party, and they had to raise money by passing. It was KFC buckets they filled up with just little bits of uh, donations, and people thought that was actually a story of a bygone era of Canadian politics. But you still do political fundraising by getting money into KFC buckets. It's just the Chinese yuan now, and it's the Liberal Party that tends to do it. Actually, I don't even know with the single-use pla single plastic bans if you can do the KFC buckets anymore, because... They used to be paper, like everything else. They've just uh, ruined it entirely. Uh, but it is my great pleasure to be here. I've had the, the opportunity to be at a couple of these uh, Canada Strong and Free networking conferences going back years, going back before they were called the Canada Strong and Free networking conference. And even if Manning is no longer in the name, we certainly are all grateful for his legacy in Canada as a, a grandfather and a godfather of the conservative movement in this country. The theme of this show is going to be political discrimination, which is uh, quite a, an important issue. We'll talk to a few fantastic people about this that have their own different perspectives. But I, I do want to give a nod to the theme of the conference, which is often, I think, overlooked in, in Canadian politics. We have, we, have, we have a prime minister who does not particularly think of middle-class Canadians, but it is about the middle class. And this is something that is so difficult. And, you know, when you talk about the middle class, one of the big challenges is that everyone identifies with it, but no one actually defines it. So we had a minister of middle class prosperity who didn't actually understand meaning of middle class or of prosperity, which strikes me as at least one of the two you should be able to get. So they abandoned that, pr that provision in the cabinet. 
But it is tough for people in the economy right now. A lot of folks here have heard about the gig economy. Things are so bad, even liberal MPs have to moonlight for China. It's uh, terrible. You can't just uh, survive on an MP salary anymore. You've got to get a little bit of help there. But uh, we are going to, I, I shouldn't make jokes about a, a serious topic, but if you aren't laughing, you're crying. And I think we need to remain somewhat optimistic because we all wouldn't be here if we didn't think that a lot of the issues about which we care were fixable and were worth fixing. So uh, speaking of jokes, let's talk about Jagmeet Singh for a moment because <laughs> he actually encouraged me for a few moments last week, just a few moments, which is all it, uh, all it takes usually. It looked like he found a spine. He was going to vote in favor of the conservative motion to compel Katie Telford as a witness, which uh, when the government eventually said, okay, fine, Katie Telford will appear as a witness to talk about Chinese interference, Jagmeet Singh said, okay, she's testifying, we don't need to support the conservative motion, and we will then, as he was saying in the same breath, uh, we'll call the conservative party a, a useless party. That was his word, and uh, I believe that he is actually an authority on uselessness, so we should take him at his word when he makes those assessments, but I, it was a bit of a backhanded way, I think, of saying, okay, they were right, but we don't want to admit they were right, and really the loyalty lies with the Liberals. But the joke's on everyone because the punishment is that we actually have to hear Katie Telford speak. So I don't know if it's actually a win, but we will see if the Liberals are in keeping with their commitment to transparency. <laughs> Sorry, couldn't get through that line. All right, let's talk a little bit about political discrimination here. This is a big issue, and it's one that I think conservatives oftentimes, and I use that with a small c casing, have a very deep-seated appreciation for, because conservatives, despite winning the popular vote in the last two elections, which doesn't amount to much in the Canadian political system, it means that conservatives oftentimes can look around and see there are a lot of people like me, but I don't see them, and I don't know where they are. And I feel alone when I'm in my office, I feel alone when I'm in my classroom, I feel alone when I'm in all of these other places. And one of the big reasons for that is the profound divide between ordinary people and institutions. Uh, John O'Sullivan, a brilliant, brilliant thinker who formerly worked for uh, Baroness Thatcher when she was the Prime Minister in the UK, coined the term O'Sullivan's first law. And I, I brought this up with him in an interview years ago and he reminded me it was also his only law, but it's called O'Sullivan's first law. And it's that any organization or institution that is not explicitly right-wing will over time become left-wing. Political parties are not immune to that. Media organizations are not immune to that. Academic institutions are not immune to that. And if you look at the 20-odd, 25 years since he coined that law, it's become more and more apparent that conservatives are always going to be swimming upstream. Conservatives are always going to be, in a weirdly roundabout and counterintuitive way, the countercultural force of our era. And we often think of counterculture as being the domain of the pot-smoking, uh, free-love hippies, but they're now the culture, they're now the majority. It's people that want to stand up for individualism, and people who want to stand up for liberty, and people who want to stand up for family, that are increasingly the ones that have to be carving out a space in an environment that is so hostile to them. It used to be that conservatives were accused of being in bed with corporations. Conservatives longed for the days when corporations could be reliably conservative, I'm sure, because right now, wokeness is permeating through institutions as well. And when I was speaking at the Canada Strong and Free Regional Conference in Red Deer, we spoke a little bit about this idea of institutional wokeness. And we were talking about some of the bigger picture aspects then, 
And I want to follow up with it in the discussion we're going to have in this show today that talks about some very real and very concrete ways in which political discrimination is not just pervasive throughout institutions, but also how it is targeting people who are on the right. And it's oftentimes called cancel culture, and I think the two are very similar, but very distinct phenomena. Cancel culture is the overarching culture. Political discrimination is the, the tactical manifestation of cancel culture, and, and it's interesting because no one, I shouldn't say no one, few people will openly defend cancel culture. People will say, well, I'm, I'm against it, but they support institutions that are increasingly closed off to people of viewpoints. And when we talked about the driftward, or the leftward drift that exists, the one important aspect that people need to realize here is that it means neutrality is increasingly liberal. So the idea of being agnostic in politics is to be liberal. And I was reminded a few years ago, CBC does these vote compass things in elections where you uh, answer all these questions and it tells you how to vote. And CBC telling you how to vote should be terrifying in and of itself, but uh, CBC after a 10 question quiz I don't think is any better suited to tell you how to vote. And years ago, I believe it might have been on Sun News Network, Ezra Levant uh, did the quiz on air and he answered don't know to every question. And at the end of it, it said liberal. Which was in a strange way probably honest, because if you don't know anything about anything, you probably are a suitable liberal voter. But the implica oh, don't give me that, oh. <laughs> it's uh, seven years, it's not too soon. Uh, and what was fascinating though is that the implicit bias in this system that they had designed, this quiz they had designed, is that neutrality is liberal. That the center is liberal. And the liberals have oftentimes relished this idea that they are a centrist party or a moderate party just because they have the NDP to the left, the conservatives to the right, therefore they're the voice of reason in the middle. But it doesn't work that way. Just because they may exist, you know, slightly three shades to the right of the ostentatious socialist does not mean they get a pass for their own socialism. And this is something that conservatives need to be very aware of. And, and we can talk about politics and we can talk about campaigns, and those are very important things. My friend Mark Stein has often said that when liberals win, they're in power, and when conservatives win, they're in office. And there's a lot of wisdom in that, because if you win an election, but every other institution is against you, whether it's the bureaucracy, the academic institutions, the media, you're going to be very limited in what you can do. And if you look at 10 years of Stephen Harper, what you do can be unraveled very quickly when you have a liberal government that comes in, and more importantly, a liberal government that has the backing of all of these other facets of society. So we're going to break it down for you on an individual level and talk about what the stakes are. And we'll do this with a great group of guests. And I want to start with two of the young faces you'll have seen coming around here through the Canada Strong and Free Network's Conservative Values Tomorrow program. And please give a warm welcome to Noah Jarvis and Liam Dunn. Welcome. So I used to, when I was on stage doing events, wear a cowboy hat myself. <laughs> 
And then I started guest hosting in Calgary, uh, living in Ontario, and I thought, well, they're going to think I'm making fun of them. So I had to retire the cowboy hat, but I'm glad it's been channeled in your attire today, Liam. And uh, Noah, it's good to have you here as well. I actually work with Noah at uh, True North, so uh, we can work in his performance review at the end of this if he does uh, particularly well. Young people, in particular, bear the brunt of a lot of this, because you don't have a lot of power when you're sitting in the classroom and you're being told what to think, and you're being told all of these crazy things that we see in the news from time to time. Uh, both of you are in university, one in Ontario, one in Alberta. Let's start off with this question. Is it as bad as everyone thinks? I think it's just as bad, if not worse, than everyone thinks. You know, the, the thing is, in Canada, we value free speech, you know, and this is a principle that we've held for decades through, you know, the Canadian Bill of Rights uh, John, from John Diefenbaker or the 1982 Charter. But it seems as if uh, ca campuses, uh, it seems as if universities don't have the same respect for free speech as you know, the everyday Canadian does. Uh, instead, they feel as if it is, the, it is incumbent on them to shape the minds of young people in the way in which they see fit. Um, this is done through the classrooms, and this is done through clubs, this is done through the uh, campus programs. Uh, every single uh, institution within the university is working against conservatives and is working to push a progressive message. Uh, an example of this would be the uh, York Federation of Students. Um, I don't want to go into too much <laughs> specifics, but uh, the, the gist of it is that um, the, the York Federation of Students is responsible for ratifying uh, campus clubs and uh, it takes about three to four weeks for your normal campus club to get ratified. Uh, but um, I can tell you that uh, the Campus Conservative Club that I'm a part of, it took about three to four months for them to get ratified. And that's not because you know, they were understaffed or anything like that. You know, other, other, other clubs were getting ratified um, uh, you know, just, just as um, in a, in a, they were getting ratified quickly, but you know only the campus conservative club took months on months on end to get ratified, and that's because you know the YFS does inherently have an anti-conservative bias. This is not just the Federation of Students; it is also the university administration, from professors, teacher administrators, um, and TAs. Um, you know, when you go into a tutorial or a lecture, um, it is the TA who is generally uh, orchestrating the conversation, and they have a lot of power in uh, in uh, highlighting or suppressing certain views. Uh, for example, if a leftist student wanted to talk about, you know, the, ter the uh, how terrible Canada is, you know, just a racist, vile country, you know, they'll get applauded uh, and you know they'll be praised and they'd be uh, encouraged to expand on their point. Whereas maybe someone like me would uh, come from the perspective that Canada is a great country that has afforded me and many other people and every single Canadian the opportunity to succeed. And that sort of message is not really accepted. It's not, it's not really um, tolerated. You know, there's mm -hmm. a lot of pushback. They encourage me to sort of you know, think about the historical uh, injustices uh, that has happened. And while you know, there is definitely a time, uh, th there's definitely a good reason to you know, address historical injustices. You know, they try to, uh, it's, it's, it's very manipulative because they, uh, they, they, they appeal to the historical injustices in order to push their own agenda, their left-wing progressive agenda, instead of recognizing the, historic, uh, the injustices of the past um, and you know, moving forward in a positive uh, direction. They instead want to uh, recognize the injustices of the past and linger on them and sort of you know, 
uh, say that uh, the, the injustices of the past is reflective on uh, the character of uh, Canada today. Um, that's just that's just one example, but mm -hmm. it just systematically the university does everything they can to elevate progressive viewpoints uh, and you know, suppress conservative ones. Yeah, I remember years ago there was a bit of a contrast. I, I was involved in, in 2010 in a, a speaking tour to bring Ann Coulter, which was at the time before the university cancel culture had gotten as bad as it's gotten since then. And we had a relatively good showing in the University of Western Ontario in London, which was where I went. We went to the University of Ottawa and had the angry mob uh, shut the event down. And the University of Calgary, which was the third and final stop, said, hey, do you guys need a bigger room? I don't think that would have happened today, uh, but let me ask you, Liam, you're at the University of Calgary. Is your experience similar to Noah's, or is it a little bit better in the conservative heartland? Uh, it all depends on which professor you have, I guess, but one word I want to lead off on is unaccountability. Mm. We have so many people in positions of power, and the university turns a blind eye to them. It's you know, these professors, they're older, they don't want to mark papers, so they get their TAs or master's students to mark their papers for them. And a lot of the times, these are the progressive ilk that don't want to go into the workforce and uh, like to stay in a room writing a thesis. So they have a lot of control. I know uh, a friend of mine, Emil, back in Calgary, he submitted a paper and in his review, in the comments, why he got the mark he did, the professor wrote down, uh, you, your conservative viewpoints are untrue, based on an opinion. I myself have been marked harder because I used uh, what I thought was a pretty good news source, uh, the post-millennial. Apparently they don't view that as scholarly or uh, an accurate news source, which was news to me when I received that big C minus on yeah. the page. Don't cite rebel or you get expelled, I think, <laughs> if you put that in a paper. But, well, is there a temptation? I mean, because I remember I was always a little bit of, I won't use the word, but a disturber of fecal matter. Uh, <laughs> and. I never minded it too much, and I was okay pushing back against, but, but is there an, an incentive for you to just go along with it, to write the paper that Canada is evil and Canadians are terrible and the Canadian flag is a hate crime and the Freedom Convoy are terrorists because you know it's going to give you a 95? Is, is that a, a legitimate temptation that you have? It, of course it is. You know, like, uh, uh, nobody wants to go into university and fail. Like, everyone wants to you know, go into university and you know, have uh, some success you know, and, and, and achieve something. And and, you know, the TAs who are uh, who just hate conservatism, who are anti-conservative, they're you know suppress suppressing you know these these views and are giving you know, conservatives uh, worse grades uh, because of the, you know they're expressing their opinions. You know, you, you go to a university in order to develop your opinion, in order to you know but you know become more informed and to challenge yourself. And you know if you know that your TA is going to mark you poorly for expressing you know, a certain kind of uh, perspective. It really inhibits your ability to challenge yourself and you know, it really diminishes the value of what you get from a university. And also, it, not, not only that, but when you graduate from university, you sort of develop, you, you have already developed these habits of suppressing your views. Yeah. So when, when you leave and you enter the workforce or whatnot, you know, you're sort of used to that. You're used to you know, suppressing your, yourself and holding your tongue. So not not only does universities uh, create leftists, but it also creates weak conservatives. Hmm. Unwilling that Stockholm Syndrome. Yeah, exactly. well that's brilliant, and uh, well, well put, yeah, please. Because 
censorship is egregious, and I, I think everyone in this room can agree. It depends on who's at the journalist table, I guess. But uh, censorship is egregious, but, but self-censorship is far more insidious because when people self-censor, you don't even have the people pushing back to give you the sense that this is something that other people believe. And that's, I think, the tremendously difficult part. And I'm assuming in classroom discussions, it's very similar, is that everyone's looking around and there may be half a dozen more people like you that are waiting for someone else to break the ice and someone else to go in and say something really controversial like, Canada's a nice place. Yeah, and, and you know, it's not, it's not everyone who's, you know, outgoing and expressive and is you know, willing to express their opinion. And, you know, there's, uh, there's people who might be just only be moderately conservative or, or not really you know, into politics and they don't, they don't think it's worth it, you know, turning most of the classroom at plus your TA, you know, against you just to, you know, say an opinion that, you know, nobody's going to remember, like, after you leave class, right? Um, and, and and that's what, what I'm saying that it creates weak conservatives because you know these people who you know feel like they have they have to bite they have to bite their tongue you know they go they go into um, you know um, their business or they work for a bank or something and you know their manager tells them that you know they have to uh, take a CRT training class or you know they have to do X or believe X or Y or you know uh, expressing uh, certain conservative political uh, views you know on your off time is you know unacceptable. Uh, they capitulate. You know they don't. You know, uh, you know they don't do what they should do, which is you know raise us think about it, um, which is which is you know quite unfortunate. And I think we, uh, we as conservatives have to be there for the people that you know uh, are are you know getting canceled or, or are having their uh, viewpoints suppressed. Because if we don't you know, provide that support network, then you're just going to have more. You're going to just create more weak conservatives and more leftists. Yeah, it's not just, you know, the suppression of ideas. I'd say it's more just outright intimidation, mm. you know. Um, I do a lot of stuff with uh, Students for Liberty, and I hear from my colleagues down in the United States, uh, they'll just do a simple tabling. They'll set up a banner, have some free books and stickers on the table, and they'll want to bring people into their movement. And these leftists organize, and they pound at their tables and make a scene and protest them. And when the campus police come around, they punish the tablers. You know, the people that spent their time setting up and being there and filled out all the paperwork, and they're coming and intimidating people from expressing mm -hmm. different viewpoints. I did a postering campaign recently at the University of Calgary. We put up a bunch of uh, less Marx, more Mises posters. And the next day, all throughout uh, the University of Calgary on our posters, pinned up a uh, picture of Karl Marx with the sign, uh, Mises is unserious on it, with some commie garble underneath. But I just thought, it's suppression that, of our commie ideas. garble, that's like a doctoral dissertation you've just uh, <laughs> taken aim at there. All right, well, let's just, in, in 15 seconds or less here, what's the, the best survival tip you can give other people in your age range? Find some people like you, you know. Uh, if there's a campus conservative on, your, on campus, join it. Um, try and... Um, don't 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 suppress, don't suppress yourself. You know, if your if TA is asking you something and you want to you know express you know a center right you know a, a viewpoint, just just do it. You know, maybe you'll find other people like you, and you you'll actually have that support network. And uh, just to add on that, if you get the comment that your friend did, <laughs> send that paper into True North. We will uh, provide some support from outside your classroom for it. But what would your survival tip be? Be authentic. That is the one thing you will find that more people believe and agree with you than you may think. 
I ran every single right-wing organization at the University of Campus at one point, and there are a lot of people that agree with you that just don't stick up, so be authentic. So I ran every single right-wing organization at my campus, too. Unfortunately, it was just one. So it, didn't it wasn't as impressive as it was in Liam's case. Well, uh, Liam Dunn, Noah Jarvis, you're doing tremendous work. Thank you so much for it, and thanks for coming Thank you on. For having me. Give him a hand, everyone. I should say, by the way, I don't think I'm all that big a deal, but I've been very grateful that people I, I've met here in Ottawa have come up and said, I, I listened to your show. And I got a little nervous, though, because I had one woman text me and said, did you know Noah Jarvis was here? And I said, yeah, but come on, he's outpacing me. So Noah's going to be doing this show soon enough. Uh, let's turn our attention to some of the policy implications of this. I, I want to welcome to the stage uh, two people that have uh, different perspectives on this, but I think very important ones. One is uh, probably one of the most prolific uh, employment and labor lawyers in Canada now, Catherine Marshall. And the other is Conservative Member of Parliament, Garnet Janis. Thank you very much. Thank you. Normally I do the show in my basement, so this is a real uh, exciting development for me, but which was flooding the other day. So this is particularly good to not have like water pouring down on the, uh, the show. But uh, let's talk about the legal context here, because we know there are people that are uh, in some cases probably directly targeted, in other cases less directly because of their political beliefs. I know in Ontario there's, in labor law or in, in human rights law, there's protection for creed, but it, that really doesn't extend to political beliefs. So do you have any protection? Well, I mean, aside from calling me, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, we, you know, this is one of the really interesting things is that pretty much everything under the sun these days is covered under human rights legislation, um, but not political protection. And what the, what the woke mobs have figured out, and it's pretty smart, um, and they do it over and over again now because it's very effective, is that a great way to silence someone and get them to go away is by attacking their livelihood. You know, when you mess with someone's ability to put food on the table, they are going to censor themselves, unless they're Jordan Peterson or Jamil Giovanni, but you know. <laughs> But those ones are, are fewer and, and further between than, than other people. And I, let me ask you about this, Garner, because I know you have a private member's bill that aims to specifically protect political discrimination by, by amending the, the Human Rights Act. And uh, this is where you have protections for, as Catherine mentioned, everything else. I mean, it, it is actually a bit amusing. And I'll, I'll quote Caitlyn Jenner, who said she had a harder time coming out as a Republican than coming out as transgender. Uh, because right now, you could identify as a woman, but not as a conservative, if you want the protection of the Canadian Human Rights Act. So why do you think that's the vehicle to address this? Yeah, and, and first of all, it's, it's great to be on your show. It's great to be here with all of you. And I think it's, it's very important that as conservatives we be people of hope, right? We don't buy into these kind of declinist narratives where everything's getting worse and it's just going to keep getting worse until the, uh, the end of time, right? Uh, no, there are, there are reasons for us to be involved in politics and to be hopeful that we can make concrete policy changes that are going to make uh, our lives and our country better. And uh, one of those ways is to uh, very simply support my private member's bill. It's C-2 there's a parallel bill, S257, from uh, Senator Salma Atulajan, a conservative senator. Uh, and these bills would add 
uh, political views and activity as prohibited grounds of discrimination in the Canadian Human Rights Act. So right now, if, if, uh, if you're uh, an airline employee, a bank employee, these are, 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 are workplaces in the federal jurisdiction, and your employer says, I don't like your religion, uh, I don't like your marital status, um, whatever it is, you're fired because of it. Then you could take them to a human rights tribunal because we, we would all accept that firing someone, discriminating against someone because of their, uh, their ethnic identity, sexual orientation, uh, religion, marital status, etc. There's a long list that that's unacceptable. But if your boss says, hey, I'm going to fire you because you were uh, advocating for lower taxes, uh, you know, or, or a pro-life position or something, I'm going to fire you because of that political view or activity, then, then you have no recourse. And uh, the great thing is we have this existing framework designed to protect people from discrimination. It just doesn't include uh, political views. So, so it's a very, I think, simple, reasonable fix. There are certain parameters around uh, human rights legislation. Uh, it's legitimately balanced against other things, and, and, and we can talk about some of those mm -hmm. limitations and exceptions. But it, it essentially fits this protection against political uh, discrimination within the wider uh, jurisprudence that exists. And I will say, it's not so radical. Uh, the, this, this protection doesn't currently exist uh, at the federal level. It doesn't exist in a number of the larger provinces, such as Ontario or Alberta. But actually, a majority of Canadian provinces have some kind of protection against political discrimination in their, uh, in their, their uh, human rights uh, statute. So not at the federal level, not in a couple of our larger provinces, but in a majority of provinces, it's already protected. Now, I should just say on, on a housekeeping note, I, I, the Canadian Human Rights Act governs federal government and, and federally regulated sectors. So yep. uh, radio is one. So uh, let me ask you, Catherine, in the case of Jamil Giovanni, if, if the law that Garnet wants to see law were, were there on the books, do you think that would change the Jamil case going up against a, a big media telecom company? Yeah, so, uh, you know, firstly, um, you know, what Jamil's doing is something that most people would never do. Like, the idea of taking on, like, a massive corporation when you've been mistreated is something that most people, that, that makes them want to hide in a hole. So it takes a lot of bravery to do that. Um, I, I, you know, I see a lot of mistreatment. I see a lot of political discrimination. Um, people come to me all the time, but most people who are willing to go forward, like I would say, one percent of the people mm -hmm. who I see, um, it would make a difference. You know, um, you know, Bell is a federally, you're, they're part of a federal, federally regulated industry. Um, you know, why, why is there not a legislative protection for people who work there? Um, uh, to be protected from political discrimination. And hopefully this case will change that. I mean, we're hoping to set a precedent. And, um, you know, something that's really disturbing uh, that I see happen is people will get terminated or they'll get hauled into HR meetings about maybe something they, they posted on social media or a comment they made at the water cooler or, you know, hey, it comes out from, you know, a privacy breach that they donated to a certain cause and they get disciplined or they get fired. And that is a traumatic experience to begin with. But then the idea of like having to then launch a lawsuit and fight your employer and have them call you a racist or call you a bad person or call you a misogynist or whatever other horrible label they're going to give you and then be publicly shamed, 
but just most people don't go down that path. And that's why we're not seeing enough change in the system. These companies are getting away with it. The mobs are learning. It's a very effective tactic. And then, you know, they've learned that because they get the success from doing it, they do it more and more. Um, so I, I'm fighting it. Um, I hope other lawyers will join me. And it's great to have clients who are willing to, to go out there and kick some butt as well. I, if I can just quickly add Please. to that point, because I think that's really critical, that what motivates me in this is there are the high-profile cases that folks will be aware of, the Jordan Petersons, Jamil Giovannis. These are people who are already involved in, in public speaking, have a public profile, uh, and, uh, and, and have a sense of, of how to fight and how to challenge these, these, these uh, things. What I'm most concerned about, what motivates me, are, are the everyday normal people who, who didn't sign up for politics or controversy, uh, who just want to be able to live their lives, do their jobs, and provide for their family, people that, that we've never heard of, uh, but who hold common sense opinions, maybe who don't hold common sense opinions, by the way, because protecting people against political discrimination applies to everybody, and it should, right? Uh, but if, if somebody is uh, simply expressing their points of view uh, in social media posts, uh, around the water cooler, uh, it, it's, it's all of those cases we don't hear about of people that are intimidated into silence, who don't have recourse, that if a bill like mine passes, they'll have some tools a bit available to them. And, and using the Human Rights Act, it's, it's often a much more accessible remedy. There are some cases, uh, Crown Corporations, federal government, where someone could litigate under the charter, uh, but that would be likely much more complicated and expensive, and they have an easier remedy available to them uh, if, we, if we use the remedies that are, exist in the Human Rights Act. But, but let me challenge the premise that human rights law is the vehicle for this, because we, we were talking earlier in the show about the institutional challenges, and human rights tribunals have not been kind to conservatives in the past, I'd say. I mean, it was the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal that was going after conservative bloggers when Section 13 was there. It was the Alberta Human Rights Tribunal that was going after Ezra Levant for uh, publishing the, the Danish Muhammad cartoon. So if you put political discrimination in, does that not actually expand the power of these organizations that could be weaponized against conservative business owners, say? Do you know what it does? Adding it to human rights legislation is at least um, a, a, a uh, significant um, message that this is wrong. And employers do pay attention to that. Um, I think that having it codified um, at least is going to have, you know, that baseline. Okay, this is wrong. You can't do this. And if you do it, if you breach this right, people are going to have some legal remedies. But I hear all your concerns about the human rights uh, tribunal systems. As someone who litigates a lot of them, I've got my own frustrations. Uh, but um, I, I wanted to touch on something that um, you brought up earlier. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we were talking about um, you know, high-profile people getting um, targeted. And of course, um, the Jordan Peterson case is another example of something that I find very disturbing, which is these groups of people are using professional regulators and the complaint systems to launch these bad faith complaints against people they want to silence. And um, I've had a lot of conversations with like doctors and lawyers and people who'll come up, you know, quietly to me and they'll say, Catherine, I, I deleted my Twitter account. Um, you know, I, I'm not writing anymore. I'm so terrified that it, if I say something that someone doesn't like, I'm going to get a complaint, I'll lose my license, I'll be suspended, and then I'll have no ability to put food on my table. And I, that really, that's very disturbing. People 
people who have interesting things to say, who, are, who should be thought leaders in their professions, are removing themselves from the arena. Mm-hmm. And it's becoming this thing where it's like, okay, are the, are the only people who are going to share their views are people who have nothing to lose, um, or maybe in their basements unemployed. That's not a good thing for society or democracy. Yeah. No, and uh, let me get your take on that. And I'm also curious about the concerns with the tribunal system yeah, as well. Yeah. To your question about the appropriateness of the vehicle, I mean, I think uh, there's a level of pragmatism that we have to have about the, the kinds of structures and institutions that exist. Um, but I think it's also important to say that, that this shifts the balance of the calculations that those bodies are going to make. Uh, so now if you have a complaint made against uh, um, somebody on the basis of discrimination uh, on one category, uh, they can they can also talk about uh, political discrimination. So there's, you know, and, and that doesn't mean that one would necessarily trump the other, right? But it but it means that uh, if that that freedom of speech, in the, the expression of a political point of view, becomes explicitly part of the calculation that these bodies have to take into consideration. And finally, look, I'll I'll say it's it's. It's true of everything we do, right? Personnel is policy. Uh, the, these tribunals are only as good as uh, the appointments uh, of the people yeah. that are on them. Uh, that's, that's inevitable. And yeah. that's maybe another conversation, which is uh, you know, how, do we, how do we ensure that people who are going to apply certain principles in a way that is, that is reasonable uh, are, are given the power to apply those principles? Yeah. Uh, but, but I don't think we should give up on our ability to, to appoint strong, reasonable people to these kinds of bodies. Uh, the question is just, uh, is, the, is the framework that they're being given reasonable and, and balanced? And I think it's just common sense that if we are going to have these bodies that are, that, are, uh, that are adjudicating complaints about religious discrimination and other forms of discrimination, then why not include uh, political discrimination as, as part of the calculation? For all you people that want to run for office, everyone wants to be finance minister, apply to be one of these tribunal, uh, one of these people on the tribunals, because oftentimes when conservative governments come in office, they have, you know, like however many uh, thousands of roles to fill, and there aren't that many thousands of conservatives that want to sit on some government tribunal. So you end up even with, you know, Stephen Harper in power, but all of these like woke liberals on the Canadian Human Rights Commission. So uh, that's a place to get involved as well. Let me turn back to you on on this, Catherine, because one of the big challenges is that you may have a case where you've got some, you know, really woke lefty uh, employer that is discriminating against an employee. But one of the things with cancel culture that happens is you get people that very viciously target an individual and they want to destroy their life and they, they look up their LinkedIn and say, oh, this person is a, a, you know, a junior sales secretary in you know, the department of whatever and they go after a company that may actually have no interest in getting into politics but the company goes into crisis mode and they capitulate and we've seen this happen time and time again. So I do think that putting it on the radar to say to companies this is not consequence free and you may capitulate to get the Twitter mob on side, but you're going to have another fight if you do. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I, I often advise my employer clients and my corporate clients that, like, look, if you don't have the back of your people, the people that you chose to hire, that you put into the roles, that might have, you know, they might have great performance, but yeah, maybe they t- did an off-color tweet or they did something stupid on social media or whatever, then 
um, you're signaling to the world that you don't have a backbone and they can come after any of your people. And it sets a terrible precedent. And I mean, obviously it exposes the company to a wrongful dismissal suit, but more to the point, like what kind of a message are you sending your own employees when you're not gonna have their back? Because a, a few, you know, um, you know, mob wokesters kind of, you know, doxed your your employee. And I think part of the problem is, a lot of companies they, they panic. You know, the idea of like trending, and yeah. you know, they they freak out. They don't know how to deal with this. So the first thing they do is the worst idea, which is to just fire the person. And they're trying to manage their own crisis. And of course, anyone in crisis management can tell you, like, don't manage your own crisis. It's a really bad idea. Um, but they've got to have more backbone. Um, and, you know, I, I'm seeing a lot of this type of political discrimination and mistreatment happen in corporate environments that are not traditionally like woke. Like I, I'm, I'm, it's sort of everywhere. Um, it's, it's really any company where you have, you know, people who are just very cautious. They're very risk adverse, and like they're firing people for saying or doing something that has nothing to do with their service or their product. And I think um, it's something that employers really have to take more of a responsibility in because this is not going to change unless companies also um, change their policies. Yeah, I remember back in, I think it was, well, actually, I know for a fact it was 2018, there was this uh, pipeline demonstration that was taking place, and someone went to Domino's and picked up some pizzas and brought them there, and then uh, it ended up becoming this controversy where Domino's was forced to comment for the crime of selling pizza to someone, and I, I wrote a column at the time about it, uh, combating against sort of corporations that were wading into politics, and then I got fired three days later, but it was unrelated. Uh, that was uh, one of the other big radio companies, but there is You should have called me. I should have, yeah. yeah. Is this, is this sort of the domino effect we're seeing? Is yeah. That uh -huh. Oh, that's good. That's good, because that means I didn't make the worst joke of the show. So <laughs> thank you for that, Garnet. But I won't discriminate against yeah, you for your, uh, your humor yeah. or lack thereof. I don't know. No. It, we're not proposing to add that. Yeah. that. You can still fire someone for telling bad jokes. So let's be a, a bit more forward-looking here, because I, I think that obviously legal mechanisms are very important, but I, I think you were touching on this as well, Catherine. The culture needs to change as well. And, and, and the one thing I've often said about cancel culture in general, not in a, a business context, is that people who resist what's happening need to speak up and defend the victims because the mob is very, yes. very loud. The mob is very loud. And when someone is being targeted, the, as someone who's been through the, the cancel culture mill, the, the, the thing that you get a lot of are people that say, I'm with you, but shh, don't tell anyone. Uh, and we need people that are going to stand up. And, and I'd say for companies as well, they need to know that there are people that are going to back them for doing the right thing as well. That's a really good point. I've acted for a lot of clients who've been canceled, um, and it is a horrifying experience. And you do feel like you want to die. Um, I have clients who have felt suicidal. I mean, there's really not that, that shame of being canceled and told that you're not worthy of being in society anymore. It's, it's one of the most terrible human emotions. And I, I get so upset um, when I see people being canceled or targeted. And I totally agree with you, Andrew. Like, we have to stand up. If we see it, as conservatives especially, we, we have to go out there and defend that person and support that person. And that means the world to that individual, but it's also a way of uh, fighting back against that cancel culture and showing the mob that 
there's going to be people who will who will defend that person, and that person is not alone. Um, and I think that's so critically important. Um, so yeah, I mean, I I mean, ironically, um, one of my other cases, and this is also in the media, is um, I'm acting for a former chair of the Alberta Human Rights Commission who was canceled, I mean, ironically. Right? Uh, he, you know, uh, so yeah, I mean, going back to the earlier point, it would definitely make a difference, at least if, you know, honor in our laws in this country. I would, by the way, love for you to take the Human Rights Commission to the Human Rights Commission. <laughs> I've, been wait, I've been waiting for that I for mean, years. <laughs> stay tuned. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, on the culture, the, the question I would ask people is, look, why why do you want to personally punish someone for sincerely holding a different point of view mm -hmm. than you do? I just have a hard time understanding this, this mentality, right? Like if, if I meet somebody who is a, you know, a socialist or whatever, I'm going to disagree with them. I'm going to maybe, if time allows, talk to them about why I disagree with them. Hide your wallet, yeah. But yeah, <laughs> but, the, but the idea that I would like, wish them harm, that I would mm -hmm. want uh, them to lose their job, not be able to provide for their family, is just absurd and so foreign to me. I, I don't yeah. think I don't think employ conservative employers should be able to discriminate against their left-wing workers either. Like I think it goes both ways. I just don't think that's happening. I think generally it's no. it's the other way around. But like I, I I can't fathom this mentality of like wishing someone ill for having sincerely considered a political issue and come to a different conclusion than me. And I think we just have to ask people. Yeah. Like aside from the the merits of this person's point of view, like. Why can't you have a conversation with them about the particulars of the issue rather than, than condemning them morally and trying to harm them because of the political conclusions they've come to? But, but this is what sets the right apart from the left and, and why in this day and age, despite how the liberals have been in the past, the right is the, the only vehicle for championing free speech. And it's funny because if you were to, to put all of the victims of cancel culture in a conference room, I think actually maybe we did, I don't know, but in general, <laughs> if you were to put them in a conference room, you're going to find people that are on the left there. There's a, a professor from Alberta named Frances Widowson who is a literal Marxist, but she has a lot more conservative friends than liberal friends because they support free speech and they support her position on, uh, you know, speaking out on, on indigenous issues the way she does. There are, my, my colleague at True North, Lindsay Shepard, was never a conservative, but she's found a home in conservative, uh, among conservative people because they're the ones that were kind of like Garnet was saying, come as you are, we don't care, you know, just, just have your position here. And, and it is cyclical and I think that would be the one bit of advice I'd give to people on the left is you may think you're immune from this. But you're not. And, and one of the more amusing examples, there was this guy who a few years ago had, you know, gotten some little viral moment with Bush, the beer company. And, you know, someone, uh, some reporter from the Des Moines Register found some tweet of his from, I don't know, like 1873 that, uh, you know, was, was mildly off color when he was a teenager and then canceled him. And then someone dug into the reporter and found a tweet of his uh, that was off color and then canceled the reporter. And it's like, who wins at the end of this? So it is like a race to the bottom. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I've been listening to a lot of Brene Brown recently, so mm. I apologize in advance, but something that she says that I love is that if you live in the arena, um, you're going to get burned. You know, you are going to fall on your face. And if you take risks with your life and you actually go out and do something and say something and hold opinions, yeah, you're going to have people who criticize you. And I think this sort of scary notion that's emerged with cancel culture of, okay, I'm just gonna be super safe, I'm not gonna ever say anything, I'm never gonna hold any opinion, and I'm just gonna hope that I just make it through life. That's, that sucks. Yeah. That's, like, that's boring, that's terrible, we don't want that.
Yeah, it was like the old joke was, what's a liberal's favorite wine? You can't say that. Uh, and I think that <laughs> there is something to that. It's like, I don't want to live the life that, you know, has to be so scripted and, and choreographed like that. So we're, we're winding down our, our time here, but let me just end with the same question to you both, and we'll start with you, Garnet. Are you an optimist or a pessimist on this? Well, I, I, I'm fundamentally optimistic about what we can do specifically through legislation. Uh, again, through my, my private member's bill, C257. I mean, I've, I've been told you need to repeat, repeat, repeat these things. C257 could, could use all of your support. Um, it, if it passes, then we will have legislation at the federal level in, in federal jurisdiction that will provide recourse to people who face political discrimination. And, and I think we have some provincial elected officials in the room and uh, others that are involved in that level. Uh, so seeing these kind of parallel legislation at the provincial level as well. Um, I think we do need broader cultural change and that's going to take time, just, just kind of uh, pushing our friends and neighbors saying, hey, let's have respectful disagreements but not try to punish each other for being wrong. Uh, but but I think we can legitimately use the tools that already exist for human rights protections. And uh, I, I don't think it's that likely that this legislation will make it all the way through the process in this parliament, given the, the timelines and so forth. Uh, but but uh, it has the strong support of our caucus, and I'm hopeful that we'll be able to see bills stopping political discrimination uh, be, be implemented and become law, if not in this parliament, then uh, under Prime Minister Polliver. Optimist or pessimist? I'm definitely optimistic, um, especially because of you know the work that Garnett's doing, and when I've got clients like Jamil Javani and people who are willing to go out there and be the pointy end of the spear and, and fight the system, I think that there is a cultural change that's happening. We just need more people to you know speak up and stand up and not be afraid to to beat down the system and challenge the system. And uh, look, I've got a lot of frustrations with the system as someone who litigates. I mean, there's a lot about the court system, the human rights system that I don't like and I have issues with, um, but it's the only system that we have. And I always say to my clients, we just, you know, these are the cards we've got and we got to play them. And there's lots of creative things that we can do to get people thinking outside of the box. But the biggest thing I think we can all do in this room, and it's something that I personally really um, tried to do, um, and it does put me in the line of fire sometimes, and I've also gotten like crazy weird complaints like from crazy people as well, which is, is you know, if I see someone getting canceled or doxxed or abused on social media because they did something or they, they tweeted something or they donated somewhere, I'll go out there like and publicly stand up for them. And I don't really care if someone comes at me and calls me terrible names because I know what it does to those people and I the idea that someone's going to feel so emotionally like ruined because of this makes me really upset. So, you know, we've got to do that and it takes some courage, but it's something that conservatives I think are really good at. I don't stand up for them because it usually makes their problems worse when I'm in their corner. So it's like, see, look, they're like Andrew Lawton. But in any case, I've always said, especially in the last year, I think the most terrifying thing you could ever see in a courtroom is Catherine Marshall on the other side of it. You've been doing amazing work, and I thank you for that and for being here today. And Garnet Jenis, Conservative MP, thank you as well, sir. That does it for us. We are going to wrap things up here. There's going to be, for those of you in the room with us now, there's going to be a brief break, and then Conservative leader Pierre Polyev will be joining us next. But for this episode of The Andrew Lawton Show, we're signing off. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.